Masechet Baba Kama Dafsadi Zain. We mentioned the opinion of Rav, who rules that the halacha is um, that there's a distinction between uh, animals and slaves. Regarding animals, if someone steals an animal and then it gets old and weak, so he, that is a physical change, and that uh, thereby the robber acquires it, and therefore he has to pay according to the original value when he bought it, when he stole it. However, a slave, Rav thinks, is the same as land. Land, you cannot steal land. Um, even if the robber goes and you know starts uh, 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 making a claim to the land, uh, but the land as an immovable object cannot transfer to the possession of the robber. And therefore, he just gives back the land. And the same thing is true with a slave. Rav thinks a slave, Evid Kanani, has the same status of land. And therefore, if the robber steals the slave, and in the meantime, he gets older and weaker, diminishes in value, nevertheless, the robber never owns, uh, gets transferred ownership of the slave. And therefore, even though it gets older and weaker, he can simply uh, give back the slave and says, here it is. Here is the very item that you owned all along. I am simply returning it to you. Good. That's what we said is the opinion of Rav. And now we're going to ask a question about that. Did Rav really say that slaves are the same as land? Rav Daniel said the name of Rav, that someone that seizes the slave of his friend. And he takes the slave and he works that slave. He does, does, does some, a few hours of work for him. The guy who stole the slave does not have to pay for those hours of work. Now, if you think that a slave is like land, then why would he not have to do the work? He is using an item, a person, that belongs to the original owner, and so he should have to pay for using something that belongs to the original owner. If you say that a slave is like uh, is like movable property, then since he stole movable property and he uses it, he acquires it thereby, and he since he, the robber acquires it, so then it makes sense that he does not have to pay for the usage of it because the robber acquires the item. If you acquire an item, then you can use it. You only have to repay the value of what you stole. Um, but if it's like land, in which case the robber does not acquire it, so then the robber is using an item that belongs to someone else and should have to pay uh, rent for using it. Uh, so the answer is, We're talking about a case where the slave was not his regular work hours anyway. The slave was going to be sitting around and doing nothing no matter what. So uh, the robber did not take away anything from the owner of the land, the owner of the slave. If it was during work hours and now he takes the slave and now the, the owner loses out on that work, and then yes, he would have to pay because he's taking the item the slave of someone else during work hours. Uh, this would be the exact, exactly the same law as land. This is the same as the question that was sent by the B. Abba to Mari Barmor, asking him to go and ask Rav Huna the following question. If someone 
dwells in someone else's courtyard without the um, without the knowledge and agreement of the owner of the courtyard. Uh, but the courtyard was empty anyway. Uh, so this is the case of the squatter is benefiting and the owner of the courtyard has no loss. So does he have to pay for that rent of, of, of dwelling there uh, for that day? Or does he not have to pay because the owner didn't lose out anything? And the answer was you do not have to pay since uh, you're not losing anything out. Therefore, the guy squatting does not have to pay. And the same thing, therefore, is true with the slave. If someone goes and grabs someone's slave and uses him on off hours, on day and day off, or in the nighttime when he's not working anyway, so that's why he doesn't have to pay. But then we uh, challenge that. Wait a second, these two cases are not the same. In the case of a home, a courtyard or a home that someone comes and lives in without permission, there it makes sense that he doesn't have to pay because there's actually a benefit to the owner not to leave the house uh, abandoned, empty. Um, and there's two different opinions about what happens to a house when uh, when you leave it empty versus inhabited. Uh, one opinion says a house that's inhabited remains ha- remains habitable. Uh, as long as when someone's living there, then they're going to go around, they're going to fix things, right? This is loose, they're going to tighten it, they're going to straighten up. And so it's actually good for the house to to uh, for someone to to live there. Uh, sometimes when people go away, they like to have uh, someone who's a house sitter, right? Live in the house. I don't want it to be empty, um, and so that I can come back and it's all everything's in place. And the other opinion is very similar. It just says the uh, from the opposite point of view um, that uh, quoting the pasuk, if a city is left in desolation, the gate is smitten unto ruin. When you leave something empty, when you come back, it doesn't stay the same, but everything decays, things are broken, and nothing works anymore. Um, and so therefore. Therefore, uh, the first opinion says um, uh, the house benefits by people living there. The second opinion says the house gets worse by people not living there. Okay, either way, the point is that it makes sense that the squatter should not have to pay. It was going to be empty anyway. And the owner is like, you know what? It's good. I'm happy. At least somebody was there. But would a slave owner be happy that someone is using his slave and weakening the slave? I know it's his time off, right? But the point is he has some time off so that when it comes back to work, now he'll be stronger. And um, now if you, if you work him work him the whole time, he comes back, he's all um, tired. So the owner would not want that. And the answer is, it actually is the same. Here also the owner of the slave wants the slave to be worked so that his, the, the slave will not be ruined by idleness. Um, uh, the idea here is that uh, the more you work a slave, the better, the more he'll work. If you give him some time off, uh, the owner just has nothing for him to do, then he's going to get used to being idle and lazy and actually be a will a wor- will be a worse worker. So actually he'll be a better worker if he's worked more. Now that we solve that problem, we have a related story about the members of Rav Yosef al-Chama's house. They would go and seize slaves from people who owed them money, right? You owe me money, you're not paying me. You know, I'm going to go take your slave, work him for the day. And I'll use that as pay, as payment 
towards what you owe me. And now Rabbah, his Rav Yosef's son, challenged his father and said, My master, why are you acting like this? It seems like it seems to be wrong that you're going and, and uh, stealing people's slaves. And uh, he, uh, the father answered, I follow the opinion of Rav Nachman, who says a slave is not worth the bread that he puts in his stomach. In other words, slaves are lazy. They don't do anything anyway. And therefore, I'm doing that person a favor by seizing his slave and putting him to work. So now it's good. He'll work, uh, he'll work more. And I'm not taking anything away from the owner. Kind of like what we said over here. But the son answered, when Rav Nachman said that, that slaves are lazy and not worth the bread that they eat, that was only talking specifically about lazy slaves like Daru, who he never works, he doesn't do any work in the field, he goes to the tavern and dances and entertains people. So that kind of slave, all you do is feed him and he does nothing. So that kind of slave is not worth the bread that he eats. That kind, that kind, yeah, it would be good if someone seized him and worked him. However, are all, are all slaves like that? Most slaves, they, they um, do a lot of work, and therefore you are detracting from these people by seizing their slaves. So he answered, oh, you know what? Okay, if I don't follow Rav Nachman, I follow this uh, ruling of Rav that we started with. That someone seizes a slave of his friend and puts him to work. Um, he does not have to pay. Why? Because it must be that the owner is happy that the slave is not uh, is not uh, uh, losing his work ethic, and he's he's good at getting put to work more, and that'll be work, work even harder when he comes back. So it must be that. Uh, so I, I'm following that, and, and that must be his reasoning. So yeah, I'm doing a guy a favor by seizing his slave, so they won't mind, and he owes me money anyway. So the son says, actually, Rav's, you can only apply Rav's ruling if, uh, when the owner of the slaves does, does not owe, owe money to the guy seizing the slave. But in your case, father, master, since the guy owes you money, and now you're taking his slave and using it, this looks like ribit. Um, you can't, uh, this is a, a important halakha. If someone owes you money, you can't get favors from them because those favors are, even if they're not uh, actual money that you're adding, you know, 10% to the loan, but those favors he's giving you, they, it seems that uh, he's doing those favors specifically because he owes you money. So this is a form of rebit, or a, at least looks like rebit, even though even if you're uh, deducting that amount, so it's not technically rebit, and even if the guy's not losing anything, so it's not technically rebit, still it doesn't matter. This looks like rebit and should not be allowed. And we have the same law regarding living in someone's house, even though we say the law in general is that someone is living in your courtyard without permission. You don't have to pay, right? Because the squatters gets benefit. The owner wasn't uh, renting out that room anyway. And so he has no loss. Nevertheless, if the squatter lent money to the owner of the house, 
and then he's coming and living in it, this is a problem because if he just lives there for free, then it looks like he's getting benefit from uh, from squatting, right? Since oh, you owe me money. Oh, in the meantime, I'll I'll get extra benefit of living here, and uh, you're not going to charge me. Well, that's the beat, and therefore, in that case, the squatter, since he's owed money, has to pay for the uh, the rental value for staying there. And therefore, the same thing would be true in your case, Dad. Right, since these people owe you money, you cannot rely on this on the ruling of Rav um, because now you're using their slave while they owe you money, and this uh, this looks like interest. And the father said, "You're right. I changed my mind. I will no longer act in that way." Someone goes and seizes someone else's boat and he uses it uh, for, uh, uh, for work. He goes and uh, uses it to, to move some items and makes money off of it. So um, now he stole it, so he has to pay. How much does he have to pay? Rav says the owner of the boat can decide the higher of the following two values. Either the rental value, there's a normal rental value, it's on the side of the boat, anybody wants to rent this boat, $100 a day. So either that, or if the owner of the boat wants, he can collect the diminishment, the wear and tear of the boat for it being used for the day. Whichever is more, he can decide. However, Shemuel says, no, the owner of the boat can only uh, take the wear and tear, the amount by which is, it is diminished. So there's machloket here, um, but now we're going to give two explanations that actually there's no machloket, they're talking about two different cases. Papa says that Rav's statement was talking about where it's a rental boat. It's, uh, the, the, the owner rents it, normally rents it out. And therefore, you have a choice to pay the rental value or, like a stolen item, you pay the diminishment in value. So the owner can decide which one. Whereas when Shemuel said, no, he can only uh, collect the diminishment value, that's because it's not a rental boat. It's not usually rented out. This is this, this guy's own boat. He used it himself. And now you stole it. So now um, you can't collect the rental value. You can only collect the diminishment value. Or you can explain the machloket that both are talking about where it's a rental boat. And Rav says, Rav's ruling was in a case where the robber, Caesar, um, he had intention as to, to, be a, a, to be a renter, even though he didn't ask permission. But nevertheless, he said, oh, you saw the rental sign, $100. So he says, yeah, I'm going to, I'll be a renter. And he goes and takes the boat. In that case, the owner can say, can he, uh, it's up to the owner to decide either to say, oh, you know what, pay the rental value or because you took it without permission, you're a thief, so pay the, the value of diminishment. Whereas Shemuel was talking about a case where the, the one who seized it, his intention was to be a robber, not to be a, a renter. And therefore, the rental value is off the table. He, on, he only pays the um, amount of diminishment.
And the next part of the Mishnah said, Gazal matbeya v'nistak. If a robber steals a coin and then it cracks, so now it's not has, has uh, little value, so he has to pay according to the time that he stole it, because now it changed, so he acquires it. Um, and the same would be true if he stole uh, fruit and they went, uh, they got rotten or wine and it became vinegar. So he stole the item; it underwent a physical change, it's ruined, uh, so he acquires the item and he has to pay the original value. This is in contrast to if he steals a coin and then it goes out of circulation. The government invalidates it. Um, the coin is still there; it's intact. Um, but it's now it's uh, the value. It's true, the value goes down, but not because of a physical change. Um, that would be the same as tirumah that becomes tameh. Also, the physical thing is here, but just legally now it can't be eaten by a kohen or chametz. That uh, now uh, after Pesach that cannot be bought or sold. Um, so and uh, in all these cases. The um, since it was only a legal change, but the item it remains the, physically the same. The owner does not acquire the the robber does not acquire it. Instead, it belongs to the owner the whole time, and the robber can return it as is, even though it's worth less now. So um, this uh, this the, this uh, case of coin. There's two interpretations. Amaravuna nistak nistak mamash nifsal pesalatu malchut. Ravuna is explaining the way we explained it um, uh, until now that nistak, the first case in the Mishnah, is where it gets cracked. That's literally cracked, so it's definitely no good. He has to then he has to pay the original value. And nifsal means if the government said uh, took it out of circulation, and so now you can't use it. Um, and uh, as uh, as currency anymore, so it didn't go undergo a physical change, but a legal change. That's how Rav Huna understands it. But Rav Yuda Amar Pesalatu Malchut Name Haynu Nistak says if the government takes out of circulation, that's the same as it being cracked. In both of those cases, now it's worth worthless. So you have to pay according to the value of the coin when it was whole and in currency. Um, that the, the at the time of the robbery, that's how much you have to pay. That's what Rav Yudah says. If so, So what's the second case of the Mishnah of an invalidated coin? That's talking about a case where it only got invalidated in one country, but it's still okay in another country. Uh, so if the first case was where the the very the government that issues this coin takes it out of circulation, so no one will take it in the world. Um, then it's totally no good. But in the second case, it's somewhat good. Sometimes they, you know, there's an alliance between two provinces, and so they'll recognize each other's currency. And then there's a change. Now there's a war between them, or there's a, a trade tariff. And so they uh, one one government says, well, you're no, no longer allowed to use, we're not recognizing that currency. Okay, yeah, but this currency still does have value in the other place, so, uh, therefore, you can't say that it has no value anymore. It's just not going to be less convenient because, you know, you have it over here. It's not recognized um, in the place that you are, but only in the other place. So, in that case, that um, the uh, currency remains, uh, some has some value somewhere, and therefore, the, owned, the robber um, uh, does, uh, does not keep it, um, does not get ownership of it, and he can return it as is. Okay, we're going to have a challenge to first to Rav Huna and then to Rav Yehuda. Amar le Rav Chista le Rav Huna, the first opinion. Le didach te amat nifsal pesalatu malchut, hare perot verkibu, yain vechemis, techi pesalatu malchut ame, vekatani mishalim kishat ha gezela. Rav Chista, Rav Huna, according to you, 
Well, you said nifsal means that the, the government uh, canceled out, took this out of currency. And uh, in that case, um, you, uh, it's, um, it, it doesn't matter since it's physically the same. So the, the robber doesn't take ownership of it and he can return it as is. Well, yeah, but that, uh, this case, uh, uh, should be the same as a fruit that went rotten and wine that went, that went bad because in all these cases, it can't be used anymore. Um, so, right, so these, they should be equivalent to the case of the coin that went out of circulation. And yet, for those, for those two, it says that he has to pay from the amount of the fruit at the time that he stole it. And here, in the case of the coin, he can return as is. Why? What's, what's the difference between them? And the Rabbuna answers simply, In the case of the fruit and the wine, they undergo a physical change. They taste different. They smell different. They're no good. There's an actual change, a physical change in the item. Whereas here, the coin has no physical change. It's exactly the same molecule for molecule as it was at the time of the of the uh, um, uh, uh, at the time of the robbery. And therefore, it's only the legal change that some government said is not is not uh, usable anymore. The robber says, I don't have to deal with that. Here's the item. It's intact. I'm returning it as is. According to your opinion, that if a coin goes out of circulation by uh, by the whole government, um, then that's the same as it being broken, um, because now you can't use it anymore. Well, uh, that isn't that the same uh, um, scenario as tiruma that becomes tameh, right? It's the same as if the government says it's no good, so now you can't use it anymore. Still, you have the same thing here. You have tiruma, and now it's tameh. Therefore, the halacha says you cannot eat it anymore. So the law of the two should be the same. Yet, Tirumah v'nitmet is in the second category where we say it's physically the same, so return it as is. Why isn't the law regarding a coin that goes out of uh, circulation by the whole government, why isn't that the same? In the case of the uh, produce, that tiruma that becomes tameh, the the um, the, uh, the the ruin is not noticeable. No one can see if something is tahor and tameh. All you see is a pile of grapes, and you have there's no way to know by looking at them if they're tahor and tameh. And therefore, they're the same exact physical item, totally unnoticeable, undistinguishable from the, what it was before, so it's only a halachic change that now is tameh. Whereas for the coin, it is evident. Even though you're right, it's the same coin, it doesn't undergo any physical change, but now that the government said this coin can, uh, can no longer be used, so now everyone shifted over to the uh, other coins that can be used, and this uh, this coin, there, everybody, everyone got rid of it. If you show up to a store with it, everybody will say, oh, that's an invalid coin. So it is no noticeable, it's distinguishable, right? Everybody knows this is on the list of bad coins, and so there is a noticeable difference here, and that's why uh, Rabbi Huda says this is part of the first category um, where um, it's uh, you, the robber acquires it and he has to pay the value, unlike referred to Ruma that becomes Tameh, which is indistinguishable, and therefore he can return it as is. 
Itmar, Hamalvet, Chabedo al Hamatbeya, Vinifsal Hamatbeya. Someone lends someone else money with a certain currency, and then that currency goes um, is cancelled. Uh, let's say, for example, imagine that before Brexit in, in England, uh, they used the euro like the rest of Europe, and then they switched and now they use the pound. Um, so let's say someone lends someone else money before Brexit when they, um, in an imaginary situation, they use the euro. And then uh, England has said, no more using euro here. Um, so now, how does he pay back the loan? Rav says you have to use a new currency, and he pays him back in the equivalent amount of British pound and not in euro anymore. Shemuel says, listen, you lent me in euro. I'm paying you back in euro. I know they don't accept euro around here in, in, uh, in England anymore, but go use it in Meshan. Go use it in France where it's still in, uh, in, in currency. Rav Nachman says, I, I agree with Shemuel. It makes sense if he has a way to get to Meshan. But if he doesn't have a way to get to Meshan, then not. In our example, if this guy normally goes to France, so then that's fine. You can pay him back in Euro and he'll use it over there. So it's still a fine currency for him. Uh, but if he doesn't go to France, he has no way of getting there, then uh, he cannot pay him back in euros, he has to pay him back in British pounds. Rava is going to challenge Rav Nachman's distinction here between having a way to get there or not. And it's from a Baraita regarding Maser Sheni. You cannot Maser Sheni, a fruit that you have to take to Jerusalem, uh, but if you're far away, it's very heavy to carry, then you can transfer the holiness onto coins. Uh, the Baraita teaches that you cannot transfer holiness of Maser Sheni to coins that are not in circulation. Kesad, and the Baraita gives examples. Hayulamaot Kosbiot, Yerushal Miot, Oshemalachim Rishonim, and Mechalelin. Ha Shalachronim, Dumiad Rishonim, Mechalelin. If you had uh, coins from Kosbiot, is from Bar Kochva. Uh, his name was Bar Kusva, his original name. But Rabbi Akiva and others thought he was Mashiach and called him Bar Kochva, son of the star, meaning the leader. And then it turns out he wasn't, so they called him Bar Koziba, the son of a liar. Anyway, while he, during the Bar Kochva revolt for a couple of years, he coined his, coin, his own coins and these were in circulation. But after the Romans came and destroyed him, then the Romans said, that's it, you cannot use these coins anymore. We still have uh, some of these coins, very beautiful. He made a put a hechal and bet mikdash on one side and uh, etrog here and uh, lulav. This is a, a lulav holder, a big wicker one with uh, one lulav, one Arava, one Hadas, which happens to be the opinion of Rabbi Akiva in the Mishnah, and he has his name around the side, Shim'on, um, and uh, the year, Shana Aleph, and was Shana Bet for, of his revolt, but there's no Shana Gimel. So if someone wants to use such a coin um, after the Bar Kochva revolt to redeem his Maser Shani, you cannot do so. Or Jerusalem coins seems to refer to coins that were stamped, during the Great Revolt um, uh, of, uh, against um, the Romans uh, for Jerusalem um, back in 70. Or earlier coins from old dynasties of kings that are found but no longer in circulation. You cannot do so. That's the end of the Braita. Now we're going to infer from it this that if it's later coins, 
um, that are similar to the older coins. In other words, if they're coins that are current, but now, you know, just now the government said, we're not going to recognize those coins anymore, then you can use them, right? In other words, in our example, if there is a euro that's good somewhere else, but just the government over here said you can't use euro anymore, then that would be okay. Only if it's an ancient coin that no one uses, then you can't use it. But if somebody uses it, then it would be okay. Uh, but this is a challenge because this makes no distinction between whether you can get there or not. It sounds like it's always okay. Um, and over here it says, no, if you can't get to, to France, if you can't get to Meshan, then it's not, um, then, it, then you cannot use it as a substitute for paying back the loan. And the answer is, This Braita here that says that you can use it for Maaser Shani is talking about a case where the governments do not, are not particular with each other. Let's see an example of Britain and France where they say, yeah, you can come and go. You want to take uh, euros there, that's fine. You want to bring some pounds back, that's fine. The border, they allow, you can declare it, you can bring it in. So then it's easy to come, easy to come and go. That's why it's, um, it's permitted to, to use that for Maaser Shini. So that means that the Shemuel's law, according to Rav Nachman, is, Nachman's interpretation, is where the kingdoms uh, are particular and don't allow you to take the currency back and forth. Then, then how can he bring it back and forth? Rav Nachman's whole distinction was, well, if you uh, normally go back and forth, then that's fine. Um, but you're saying that this is only a case where they are particular. If they are particular, they're going to stop you. Then there's no way to bring it back and forth. So the answer is, No, we're talking about a case where uh, the government... Uh, you, you, you can still bring it with with difficulty because the government does not search. They not they don't check, right? You just you put it in the bottom of the of the, uh, uh, of your suitcase, and uh, they're not going to check. If they do happen to check, then they will uh, confiscate it. But usually they don't, and therefore um, you can sneak it in pretty easily. Um, I mean, with some difficulty, but you can get it there. It's not like they're really checking so much. Tashima en mechalin al maot shel kan vehen bebavel veshel bavel vehen kan shel bavel vehen bebavel mechalin. Another question against Shemuel's opinion. Um, we have a varaita that says you cannot re redeem a transfer holiness of maaseh any fruit to money um, on that of here. The Baraitot are written in Eretz Yisrael. So Khan means in Eretz Yisrael. So money of Eretz Yisrael, if the owner is in Bavel, it doesn't matter where the fruit is. You don't have to be with the fruit to do the, to do this. Um, so if the owner is in Bavel, then he can't use Eretz Yisrael money in Bavel. Wrong currency. And similarly, if he's in Israel, he can't use Babylonian money. This, there was a dividing line between the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire. So he's using uh, currency from the Persian Empire while he's in Israel, which is under the Roman Empire. No good. And uh, furthermore, however, if he's in Bavel and he's using Babylonian currency, that's okay. Now, what can we learn from this? Breita said that you cannot use a money of Israel while you're in Bavel to redeem the, the, uh, the fruit. But why not? 
if, if you're in Bavel and you redeem the money with uh, Israel, with with, um, with money of Israel, uh, eventually, what are you going to do with that money? Well, you have to bring it to Jerusalem, right? That's the law. You have to go and consume it in Eretz Israel. So for sure, you're going to come. So that should be in Shem, according to Shemuel, since you are going to go to that place, then you should be allowed to redeem, um, even though it's the wrong currency of that country, because you're eventually going to go to that country. So this um, it, it should be this is fine over here. A challenge to Shemuel, and the answer is This Beraita is where the kingdoms are very particular, and they don't allow, and they check your luggage, and they don't allow any currency to go in and out. And therefore, if you're gonna if you're gonna um, uh, take your produce, if you're gonna uh, redeem your produce while you're in Bavel with Israeli money, with money from the Roman Empire, and there's no way that they're gonna let you in with it, so then you can't do that because you can't get it there. Well, if so, what about the case of Babylonian money while you're in Bavel? And that the Beraita says it allowed is allowed. But what are you going to do with it? You just said that you can, there's no way to bring it to Eretz Israel because the uh, the governments are very particular. And the answer is No, you can always use that money to buy an animal, and then the animal you can bring to Jerusalem. And so, uh, since you can still use the money, redeem that money with an animal and bring it. So there is a way to use it. We now have a question on the Braita itself that said, when you're in Eretz Israel, you cannot use Babylonian money. But this Braita says that the rabbis made a takana that you can use any money in circulation when you're in Jerusalem. For precisely for this reason, because we know people are coming from all over, all over the world, all different countries on pilgrimage, and they're bringing their currencies from all different places. So in Metakana, that we accept all currencies in Yerushalayim. So if I'm uh, using Babylonian currency in Jerusalem, then it should be it should be permitted. So how come the Braita before it said it's not permitted? Uh, but according to this, it should be permitted. This depends. The uh, Braita that said all money is valid in Jerusalem, that's when the, uh, the hand of the Jews uh, is over, overpowering, is dominant over the, uh, the, uh, the power of the other world, of the other world powers. In other words, when Israel is in charge and has independence over the land, so then they can make such a, such a declaration. It says, listen, anyone who wants you want to come and bring um, uh, currency from wherever you are, you're allowed to bring it and you can use it. However, the previous Braita was talking about when we're under foreign rule, uh, uses Lashon Sagi Nahor, when the foreigners are uh, in control of themselves. It means not only of themselves, but also over the Jews. And then they will not allow foreign currency to come in and will not allow it to be used in Jerusalem. Well, if they don't allow it to be used, then we can't allow a person to redeem their their produce uh, in Eretz Israel with currency from Bavel because you can't use it and it's not it's out of our hands. If it's out of our hands, you can't do it. If it's in our power, then you can. What is this um, uh, coin of Jerusalem that Beraita mentioned? 
David Shlomo Misad Echad Vishlam Ira Kodesh Misad Acher. It's a coin from ancient Jerusalem that was established by David and Shlomo, and therefore it has the names of David and Shlomo on one side, and and Yerushalayim um, uh, Ira Kodesh, the holy city, on the other side. So showing the holiness uh, of Yerushalayim and uh, giving acknowledgement to David and Shlomo as its founders. And what is the coin of Abraham Avinu? We didn't mention it, but there's such a coin. So what is this coin? Um, you have an old man and an old woman on one side, and the young man and young woman on the other side. The older couple represents Abraham and Sarah, and the younger couple representing Yitzhak and Rivka. What a beautiful coin, representing the transmission of generations, right, from one to the next, that uh, what one generation is the other, is the uh, other side of the coin of what they pass on to the next generation and uh, both need each other. Uh, the um, older need the younger to pass on to, and the younger need the older to teach them their, their ways. And so this is what Abraham is all about, not just to be great himself, but to pass on the, his values and the berit and so the kamishpat to the next generation. What a beautiful coin. I hope we find one one day. Let's say um, I lent you, uh, you know, 10 uh, coins of a certain denomination, and then the government decided that they're going to enlarge the coins. Since from now on, when you make this coin, you have to put 10% more silver on it. So now, how am I going to pay back? And the answer of Rav Chista is that you have to pay the new coin, whatever it is, right? Even though you paid 10 of the old coin that was smaller, now they changed it, so you still have to pay 10 of the same coin, and now it's bigger. And yes, even if it's a, it's a lot bigger, as large as a sieve, Amalein, yes, even that big. Not just if it's a sliver bigger, if it's a lot bigger. Amalafiluki tariya, even if it's as big as a quarter cup, even if it's gigantic. Amalein, yes, whatever, whatever they make the new coin. If that's that's the same denomination coin, but they made it bigger, well, you have to pay with that. Yeah, but this doesn't make sense because now that you're using a bigger coin, the the um, the price of the produce will go down. Not that the price of the produce actually went down, but now the coin, since it has more metal in it, more silver, is worth more. And so this is going to be a problem of ribit, of interest. Right? I gave you 10 small coins, you're giving back 10 big coins, and you can use those 10 big coins to buy a lot more. So this should be prohibited. So we have to look. If the decrease in price of the produce is in fact because the weight of the coin is more, then we're going to have to reduce the amount that is paid for, for, by the coins. Right? Then in fact that would be the beat. And we're going to have to weigh out and just pay the same, uh, the same uh, value, the same buying power, um, not the same number of coins, but we'll look at the buying power, the same amount of produce that it would um, buy. However, maybe the price of the fruit uh, went down just because of the market, the market fluctuation of the price of uh, potatoes and uh, apples. So then in that case, so it's not because the coin is different. 
but rather just the market price is different, then you have to pay back the same number of coins, even though they're bigger. Okay, even if uh, the the prices did, did not change for the for the apples, because the it's the apple market that changed, but otherwise. Um, the the, uh, the the price is the same. Uh, the buying power is the same for fruit. Um, nevertheless, for the purpose of making a bar of metal, it's certainly different, right? Beforehand, you could take a uh, hundred coins to make a bar bar of metal. Now that the coins are bigger, um, I could take just eighty coins and make the same bar of metal. So this is going to be a problem of debit. If I'm going to be paid back, paid back, I gave you a hundred small coins, and I get back a hundred big coins. That is certainly worth. It's, it's more metal, more silver. I could make more bars of metal out of it. Rather, uh, must be that in such a case where I gave you, you know, 10 uh, small coins, well, we have, we need a solution that Rav Papa and Rav Huna, the son of Yehuda, when, when they uh, had an actual case like this regarding some guy named Agardamis, the Arab merchant, and they originally, they uh, had 10 coins, but then the um, the currency changed and they 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 um, evaluated that ten of the old coins is worth eight of the new coins, and so in that in that case, even though um, uh, originally he lent or 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 um, offered a price of ten coins, and then when the new new price the new coin came out, they said this is worth eight coins. The same thing is uh, is the same. That would be the same halacha in our case. If I lent you ten small coins, then you don't have to pay back ten big coins. It was, the, the halacha just meant that you have to pay back with big coins. But how many big coins is actually less. We go by the buying power, by the amount of silver um, in it, and therefore it could be that there would be only eight coins that you have to pay back, and thereby we avoid any problem of ribit, and also we are paying back the fair amount. Baruch Adonai Leolam. Amen v'amen.